0: For anyone who has studied the history of salvation, the history of our religion, you know that one way of looking at it is really the history of the covenants, the covenants that God has made with his people, the covenant that God has made with us and with all of our ancestors. And there's a a series of them, the covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and these, in a sense, leading up to the covenant with David. David is a key figure. And theologians even say that the Old Testament, besides the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament is really a story of David and his descendants. So David is key. Now, these two chapters that we just heard, the first reading from 2 Samuel and the Psalm, they've been described as the most as the two most important chapters of the story of David. So David is the most important story of the Old Testament. These two chapters are the the most important stories, chapters of the story of David. I'll explain that in a second, but David was the, the fulfillment of the covenants before him, the patriarchs before him. So Adam, Noah and Abraham, David, in a sense, representing them and also representing all of Israel. So now David makes a covenant. God makes a covenant with David and really... Accom- accomplishes in a sense that the plan of salvation not in a full sense of course we'll get that in with Jesus but in the Old Testament accomplishes this plan of salvation now everything after David is pointing to the return of the king so David was the king and there was a loss of the kingdom after him and then everything pointing to the return of the king this by the way is a side note Anyone who likes the Lord of the Rings and those books, those those movies. That's what that's about. Right. That's why the third book and movie is called The Return of the King. Aragorn had had been from the descendants of the of the king, and there is this prophecy that the king would eventually return. And so we see in the in the last movie Aragorn sitting on his throne, the king returning. And J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, he was a faithful Catholic and he was telling the, the Christian story, the Catholic story through his novels. And people, I don't know if he would have agreed with this, but people have interpreted Aragorn being Christ the king. Frodo being Christ the priest, the one who offers sacrifice, the one who destroys the ring, which represents sin. And then Gandalf being Christ the prophet. It kind of fits. I don't know if that's what Tolkien had in mind, but in any case... The return of the king. So now David was the king. So now he lost, the kingship was lost. So now there's this prophecy that the king will return. And of course, this happens finally in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. And that's why we say at every Mass, if you hear it when I I consecrate the chalice, you you hear the blood of the new and eternal covenant. The new and eternal covenant. So all these covenants, these stepping stones, towards the new and eternal covenant now okay why why are these two the most important chapters in the old testament in this story well there's the first the first reason there are two reasons the first reason we'll get from the second the book of second samuel and there's a there's a bit of an irony here from the lord which is not the only time that we see this but David has firmly established the kingdom of Israel, Israel in his own possession, in his own hands. So he's king, everything is going well, things are well-ordered. And his internal response to that, his impulse, what he wants to do is to build a house for the Lord. Now that everything is well-ordered, I want, I want to build something for the Lord. I want to build a really good temple, I really want to build a really good house. And he says, he says it like this, he says, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God dwells in a tent. That's not good enough for the Lord. We need to build a better house, a better temple for the Lord. And how does God respond? He says, should you build me a house to dwell in? And I'll keep reading, but if you remember in the book of Job, you know, Job... Who lost all of his possessions? Job, who was a faithful man, a righteous man, lost everything. And then he started complaining to God God, you took this away, God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And finally, after a long period of silence, God speaks. And he speaks, the, this is the longest speech by God in the Bible, is when he responds to Job. And he says, Where were you when I founded the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its size? Surely you know. See the the irony here? God speaking to Job. Who stretched out the measuring line for it? Et cetera, et cetera. This is all all that I'll read from Job. But this is how God responds to Job when Job is complaining to him about having lost everything. And so back here to, to David, same thing. God saying to David, It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock. And notice, David was wanting to do something good for God. He was wanting to build a house for God. Should you build? Should, and God's response, Should you build me a house to dwell in? It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be commander of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. And I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. I will fix a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their place without further disturbance. Neither shall the wicked continue to afflict them as they did of old. Since the time I first appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. I, the Lord, will do all these things for you. The Lord also reveals to you that he will establish a house for you. And when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your heir after you sprung from your loins. Of course, this is referring to Jesus and I will make his kingdom firm. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall stand firm forever. You see here, David, in recognition of the kingdom that he had established in front of him, now wanted to do something good for God. Praise, praise God for that, right? That's a good intention that David had there. But God's response is much better, much bigger, much greater. It's not you will do something for me. It's I will do something for you. I, God. And what will I do? I will give you my son, Jesus. And in doing so, I will establish my house and my kingdom in you forever. So the lesson here, humility. Submission before God. In distress, when God takes everything away, as with Job, or allows everything to be taken away. Or in prosperity, when everything is in order. Submission before God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, and then from the psalm, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have, this is God saying to the, God proclaiming, I have sworn to David my servant, forever will I confirm your posterity and establish your throne for all generations. He shall say of me, you are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. Forever I will maintain my kindness toward him and my covenant with him stands firm. You are my father, my God, the rock, my savior. See, this is a turning point in the history of salvation. Now God is no longer just a creator up in the sky, distant, far away, dictating rules and commandments. All those things are still true. But God is now a father, revealing this to David, which will then, which prefigures then Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming down and revealing God perfectly as Abba, Father. This is the type of relationship that we can have with God. That God invites us into. To be in that type of providential relationship. To be sons and daughters. To receive from God. Not to build a house for God. No. To receive from God the house that He wants to build in us. And this sets up our Gospel. The angel appears to Mary and says that everything that had been prefigured will now take place. And it will happen in you, Mary, if you say yes. Now this story is well known. I won't go, I won't rehash it. But I will read to you a a homily, a piece of a homily by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. St. Bernard A monk who died in 1153. He wrote, he wrote the following. Now in the moment, in the moment after the angel makes his declaration, the angel says what he said to Mary. And now before Mary responds, St. Bernard inserts this reflection. You have heard, O Virgin, that you will conceive and bear a son. You have heard that it will not be by man, but by the Holy Spirit. The angel awaits an answer, it is time for him to return to God who sent him. We too are waiting, O Lady, for your word of compassion. The sentence of of condemnation weighs heavily upon us. The price of our salvation is offered to you. We shall be set free at once if you consent. In the eternal word of God we all came to be, and behold, we die. In your brief response we are to be remade in order to be recalled to life. Cheerful Adam, with his sorrowing family, begs this of you, O O loving virgin, in their exile from paradise. Abraham begs it. David begs it. All the other holy patriarchs, your ancestors, ask it of you, as they dwell in the country of the shadow of death. This is what the whole earth waits for. Prostrate at your feet. It is right in doing so, for on your word depends comfort for the wretched, Ransom for the captive, freedom for the condemned. Indeed, salvation for all the sons of Adam, the whole of your race. Answer quickly, O Virgin. Reply in haste to the angel, or rather through the angel to the Lord. Answer with a word, receive the word of God. Speak your own word, conceive the divine word. Breathe a passing word, embrace the eternal word. Why do you delay? Why are you afraid? Believe, give praise, and receive. Let humility be bold. Let modesty be confident. This is no time for virginal simplicity to forget prudence. In this matter alone, O prudent virgin, do not fear to be presumptuous. Though modest silence is pleasing, dutiful speech is now more necessary. Open your heart to faith, O blessed virgin, your lips to praise, your womb to the Creator. See, the desired of all nations is at your door, knocking to enter. If you should pass by because of your delay, in sorrow you would begin to seek Him afresh, the one whom your soul loves. Arise, hasten, open. Arise in faith, hasten in devotion, open in praise and thanksgiving. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, she says. Be done to me according to to your word. This was, of course, true for her 2,000 years ago, but it's also true for each and every one of us today. How are we going to live this moment forward? Are we going to complain to God when things aren't going our way, complaining that He has taken things away from us, or that life's unfair, unjust? Are we going to spin the wheel ceasingly, trying to build a house for God? Trying to be God's ourselves? Trying to provide for ourselves? Or are we going to submit to God and say, Yes, be it done to me according to your word. Build your kingdom in me, O Lord. Now, if all this is too abstract. I'm going to read to you a, just a paragraph from a psychologist. He was here speaking about his wife who was going through a very debilitating disease and she, she very easily could have died. And so he was saying this about her in her prayer life, what, what her prayer did for her. But as I read this in this context, I realized that she, this psychologist could also have been saying this about, about Mary and, of course, about each, each of us. But he says, She wasn't praying to live. She wasn't praying that God would provide her a special dispensation. She was praying that she would conduct herself as appropriately as could possibly be managed, given the situation at hand. That's what it means, in some sense, to put yourself in the hands of God. You don't know what the outcome is. Maybe it is that you live, and maybe it isn't. But what you can pray for is that you handle what is thrown at you in the best possible manner, whatever that is. That can be a very demanding aim. That's a terrible thing to be called upon to do. But all other pathways merely make hell deeper. And this is the summit of this is Mary. That's a terrible thing to be called upon to do. To be called upon to take on the savior of mankind in her own body. And deliver that savior into life. Give birth to him. But then of course deliver him to the cross. That's a terrible thing to be called upon to do. But all other pathways make merely make hell deeper. So just to tie all these things together, to tie all these things together. As we submit to God, we grow in humility. As we grow in humility, we grow in acceptance of reality as it is, not as we wish it to be. As we do that, We don't get bogged down by the storms storms of this world. We see beyond them and into the reality of the new and everlasting covenant. The covenant in which we are God's children and he, our father, takes care of us. This is what allows us to serenade constantly and eternally. Forever, I will sing the goodness of the Lord.